Hi, Alex from the Lorax here, with a quick note to say that these episodes on Warhammer 40k were recorded in 2022, before the launch of the 10th edition of the game. So, if we have any information that is outdated due to the launch of the new edition, sorry, blame our schedules. Enjoy the show. Oh, come on, man. Stop eating on the mic. You don't record an episode. No, I'm not eating. I'm ingesting biomass. Well, on the subject of ingesting biomass, <laughs> we'll get to that in a sec. But welcome to the Lorax, a podcast where we take beloved sci-fi, fantasy, and fictional settings, and we look probably a little bit too deeply into all the nooks and crannies through sociological, historical, and philosophical lenses. I'm Khalil, or Kinko. And I'm joined by Alex. I'm still eating the food. <laughs> We're going to need all that biomass to get through the uh, the monstrosity of a topic we've got today. Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, uh, it's first to mention that a uh, quick shout out for those who are joining us just for this episode. Um, this is going to be part four in a huge multi-part series detailing pretty much every single faction from Warhammer 40k. Well, huge. A, f- a five or six episode series. Yeah, yeah. <clears> I mean... <throat> That's still pretty substantial for yeah. us. Um, so yeah, if, if you're looking for more context, this this episode will sort of assume a level of background knowledge of the setting. But if you're if you're completely new to 40k and you're like uh, you've got no idea any of the terms we're using are, then I'd recommend you go back and you listen to our first part about the Imperium of Man, which sort of covers the wider 40k setting as well and space fascism and stuff like that. Yeah, exactly. And then some of the other races that might might be mentioned in passing in this episode, um, stuff like orcs, Eldar, things like that. Yeah. But uh, with those already covered, it's time to move on to uh, perhaps the most unique faction in Warhammer 40k. Unique within the universe, yeah. Yeah. And we're going we're gonna to talk later about how it fits into the rest of sci-fi. Yeah, so we're talking about the Tyranids, or the Tyranids, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I go Tyranids, so I don't know about you, Kinko. I started off when I was a kid saying Tyranids. And now I say tyrannids, and I don't know which way is up. Like tyrant. But it's like tyrant or tyranny. Yeah. I mean, I, the, it's a name that was given to these creatures by humans. And so mm. it's not a name that they use for themselves anyway. Yeah, we don't know what they call themselves. Um, Probably a sequence of clicks and hisses. <laughs> exactly. I mean, well, I don't think we have had a talking tyrannid yet. Uh, he says, uh, hoping that it never happens. Uh, <laughs> so There are probably some that can talk in your mind. Yeah, well, yeah, these are the... Uh, and you've got the Gene Stealer cults. And, and, anyway, we'll get we're, to that. Wow, we're, we're jumping way ahead. <laughs> for, for those who have, have literally just heard us say a bunch of words that you don't really understand, um, Tyranids for the Unaware. So, w- realise that podcasting is an extremely... Uh, it's not it's not a visual medium, so you're going to have to sit down, close your eyes. Come uh, with us on this journey. Exactly. Well, we talk about what uh, the Warhammer Wiki calls... Uh, an extragalactic composite species of hideous insectoid aliens entirely dedicated solely to their own survival, propagation, and evolutionary advancement. And, you know, they've used a lot of multisyllabic words there. <laughs> he said using a multisyllabic word. <clears throat> but essentially, they are big, hungry, psychic space insects. Yeah, they're a sort of a superorganism in a way. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're the. Uh, the biologist of the two of us. Uh, is there any? Is there any sort of real world uh, comparison? 
Yeah, um, there are, you know, and I think, you know, once we go into a little more detail about the hive collective behavior of the Tyranids, it'll be, we'll be able to kind of delve, in, delve into it a little bit more deeply. But there are, you know, lots of examples of groups of organisms, groups of animals especially, the interactions within that group kind of begetting a a larger sort of scale of behavior that operates at the group rather than the individual. Mm. Um, and this is what you call superorganism mm -hmm. because not only is it made up of organisms, but it's behaving like its own organism. Great. Yeah. And that, that's exactly how the tyrannids are described as well. Um, except they're the composite parts of, of this superorganism uh, are biomechanically engineered creatures connected with through a sort of gestalt consciousness uh, known as the hive mind. Uh, they're, they're made of, most of them anyway, are made of overlapping chitinous scales, uh, lots of limbs, lots of sharp teeth, big claws, and uh, always with long flicky out tongues. Yeah, and there's lots of kind of like things that spray acid and spores and stuff like that. Yeah, I think for those who are completely alien, pardon the pun, to the Tyranids, uh, imagine Alien, the film. Or all the works of H.R. Geiger, which is a, a massive inspiration for the creation of the Tyranids. Yeah. So, again, anyone who's not familiar with H.R. Geiger, Swiss artist, um, you know, very influential in a lot of this kind of biomechanical sci-fi. Um, imagine the alien films and the Tyranids, but with more dicks. <laughs> there's like there's, there's a there's there's a bit of a kind of like there's, yeah. well, I say there's a bit there's a very strong kind of sexual vibe to to Geiger's work as well. Mm. But unlike, I mean, ne not necessarily exactly like the Xenomorphs, and not exactly unlike the Xenomorphs, the Tyranid's purpose, as we said at the, at the start, is to basically to consume biomass, to or crisps in my case, to make more Tyranids, uh, to then consume more biomass. To make more Alexes. To make more Mees, and then find uh, find the greatest evolutionary markers and strengths, i.e. me. Um, <laughs> to, absolutely not me. Uh, to, to make even better Tyranids, to consume even more biomass. And that's something I've always really loved about the Nids. Um, you know, as someone who's always been fascinated by living things and especially kind of evolutionary processes and, and co-evolution of hosts and parasites and predator and prey and stuff like that. The 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 ways that the uh, the Tyranid swarm evolves is very much directed. So it's you know, it's not just they have kind of uh, random mutations that build up and then they're selected through kind of pressures of, of, of their environment. It is very much that the the hive mind super consciousness, which is very much a psychic force rather than the kind of the, the kind of observed behavior that we talk about in the real world. And they, they look at the threats that they're coming up against and the resistance that they're coming up against in, in whatever fights they're fighting to consume these planets and they will actively harvest genetic material from these uh these host species and use them to create bioforms that can that can fulfill new roles in this fight and okay if we're going to talk about the different roles that the different kind of organisms play within the the hive we should probably start from big or start from small uh, I think probably start from big. Okay, so at the largest, you've got the hive ships. And so these are how the Tyranids travel through space. Because you mentioned before that they're extra galactic. Yeah. 
which means that they don't come from our galaxy. Like all the other races within 40,000, we're all talking about stuff that has happened within the galaxy and within the history of the galaxy. Mm-hmm. The Tyranids are coming from outside. And in a, un- in a fictional universe that's so predicated on, oh, scary outside threats, it's the ultimate scary outside threat. Yeah. So how do you travel through the inter- through the, the intergalactic void? You travel in a giant space squid thing. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's important that to... to re- I mean, the Tyranids are, are great in the, the emphasize. It, it's, it's, bi- it's biological all the way up. Like, they don't have, like, they fly in living ships that are pilot that are piloted by the Tyranids, but also one with them, controlled by them. All of these people connect, all of these creatures connected with the, the consciousness of the, the hive mind. Um, they're all spawned by the same creatures, the so-called non-queens that live inside the hive ships. Uh, and they even have, uh, as even a, a t- special type of Tyranid uh, hive fleet ship, that can travel at faster than light speeds by gathering, uh, I think, I, from what I recall, gathering electromagnetic particles on its like fins and then using that charge to f- fl- fling itself through space. <laughs> wow, that's uh, a detail I hadn't heard. Yeah, yeah, there is, I think they have a they have a, they have a name that sounds a lot like narwhal, but I can't remember exactly mm-hmm. what it is. I think it might be narval or something like that. Um, but yeah, the thing about uh, so the, these huge hive fleets that are that are entering. Uh, the galaxy are so-called high fleets, and there's a lot of that uh, emphasis on the idea of, you know, um, in the same way that you might find you, you might find a, a, a wasp's nest under the deck in the garden. It's sort of like that, but imagine if the wasp's nest wasn't uh, just you know a football sized, uh, but more about a shed, the size of a shed, and the wasps range in size from the small worker wasps to the ones as big as dogs that were yeah. like. Uh, that are called in to re- to take you down while the others feed on you. Whereas at this uh, in this case, we're not talking about the size of wasps and the size of dogs. We're talking about something between the size of a dog and the size of a skyscraper. Yeah. In terms of these 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 ground units mm. that they field in these in these wars. So again, if we're starting from the big hive ships, what's next down on the pecking order? Because it's kind of they they do have kind of a command structure, like mm. like with a normal kind of um, humanoid army, but it's all done through the psychic kind of tree, the psychic hierarchy of yeah. the hive mind. Yeah, I mean, I think we go from if we talk about non queens uh, and the the extra planar uh, beings that are up there. Uh, sometimes a non queen will arrive on a, on a planet, which is I don't know, which is like a big thing. But below them, in sort of the the hive mind hierarchy, is the uh, the hive tyrant and the swarm lord. Um, the hive tyrant being sort of the, I guess, matriarch slash patriarch slash what's the gender neutral term for that? I don't know. Yeah, I, I, yeah, but, hmm, what is it? Hmm, we'll have to come up with. We'll that. have to come up with that. Uh, tyr- yeah. Tyranarch of uh, a, a given high fleet or group of high fleets. Uh, they're not so much shooty stabby warriors, although they are very capable combatants. Shooting and stabbing. Yeah, but they're more about standing there and directing the smaller groups that come under them, uh, and then. The next sort of synaptic link along that is uh, the um, the Tyranid Warriors, which, uh, despite what the name says, are not the most numerous uh, of the their forces. So wait, when we're talking about size, so we're like, so the Hive Tyrants, we're talking house size. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when we get to the Warriors, 
we're talking what ten foot tall, yeah, twelve foot tall. Yeah, I, like I think I think it would be helpful to imagine like a, a everyone knows dinosaurs, so like Hive Tyrant's probably about the size of like a Tyrannosaurus mm. thereabouts, and then like Warrior's probably about the size of the inaccurately sized Velociraptors, um, or the Dinonychus, whichever one it is in Jurassic Park that they missized. But... Yeah, although there's, it's hard to compare in that in that sense because kind of their orientation, they're a lot more kind of yeah. bipedal, yeah. upright. But they they're also they all share very sim- sort of similar. Well, in that case, imagine if you took that T Rex and you shrunk them down by about half, maybe or maybe two thirds, and you've got yourself a Tyrannid warrior in terms of size. Mm. Um, and then there's also uh, the floating brain Tyranids. Uh, and now I said brain, I can only think about brain bugs and Starship Troopers. The zoanthropes, uh, zoanthropes, yeah, which are incredibly psychically potent, physically. They are just a, a kind of floating brain with a carapace and a tail and yeah. stuff. So physically very vulnerable, but psychically incredibly powerful, surrounded by psychic shields and blasting rays of psychic energy all over the place and and really kind of making making the, the weird part of the, the storm. Yeah. And then they have, uh, because obviously the Tyranids don't have like armor, mechanized equipment. They have units that stand in for those, like the very, very cool Carnifex. And Carnifex is basically what stands in for a, a tank or a dreadnought. Yeah. Um, in the the Tyranid army, and again, they are, you know, uh, similar size to the Hive Tyrant. You know, we're talking house sized. Yeah. And they're all covered in thick armor plates and big claws, and and these kind of. I think we, we at this point maybe we should mention the the Tyranid bio weapons, the guns that they have, yeah, which are, you know, still part of them as organisms. Like they are various kind of muscular tubes and launchers and stuff that will fling, whether it's uh, tiny hard crystals coated in acid, like the venom cannon mm. or a plant seed that will like germinate in midair and grow all these strangling vines over an area or the flesh borer that fires little hungry beetles that yeah. burrow through people's armor and flesh. Um, it's all very, very gross and very cool. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and there, there are numerous other um, sort of specialized Tyranid. Uh, yeah, like units. artillery pieces and yeah, flying ones. Yeah, yeah. The other ones that are worth mentioning are probably uh, the Lictor, which is uh, their gorilla stealth sort of um unit that yeah it has kind of chameleonic camouflage and... yeah and then um sort of I, and then there's it comes to the the final sort of the gaunts the gaunts so gaunts yeah. is it's it's presented as a genus mm. um with various species within it so you've got and and these are all you know about the size of a big dog yeah um and you've got the hormigaunts who you know are they have slicing talons and they can jump. And you've got the termagants who kind of skitter around and they've got these like little beetle firing guns that mm. are flesh borers. And you've got gargoyles that can fly. Um, and those are, I think, the three main sorts of gaunts, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, they're very much the the cannon fodder of, of, of yeah, just, Tyranids. Yeah. If, you, if you're... If a, if, a, blah, blah, blah. if a Tyranid swarm is coming at you over the hill, what you'll probably see is seas and seas of... Seas, seas and seas? <clears throat> what you'll probably see is 
hundreds and thousands of these skittering and jumping gaunts mm. um, and rippers who are these little uh, wormy tooth monsters. Yeah. Pouring, pouring in waves, punctuated around the swarm with these larger, more, uh, more martially and psychically competent beings that serve as kind of anchors to this swarm and they coordinate it by channeling the power of the hive mind yeah. whilst also opening a whole can of whoop ass with their giant claws and giant kind of weird sphincter guns yeah i think it's also worth mentioning the uh a type of unit or in in the lore and in the game which is which starts out distinctly separate from the tyranids um mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll we'll touch on the, the origins of that in just a minute but the the gene stealers um so imagine that i talked earlier about finding a wasp's nest the size of a shed under your deck but imagine uh, if that wasn't so much. <laughs> imagine if uh, that wasn't the first time you saw them. Imagine that a lot of wasps got into your house, and then very, very slowly, through via pheromones and sort of weird biomechanical seduction, made you want to fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> and then it made you ha- made, and then give birth to loads of semi-human wasp babies that then uh, were entirely loyal to the wasps that broke into your house. <laughs> And then, then went outside and pulled up the decking and called the the wasps up from their shed sized hive to consume you, your family, and everyone you love. But, okay, so much as I love slash hate that analogy, <laughs> to break it down, gene stealers will they in the current kind of law they will go in advance of the hive fleet yeah. and they will infiltrate any planets that have sentient life that might cause kind of robust resistance to the hive fleet and they will kind of wheedle their way into those societies and start cults and and get their their kind of their members into the planetary defense forces and (laughs) i i didn't know that canonically it was through fucking yeah canonically it's through i thought i thought they just like abducted them and mutated no 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 they make the they make people have sex with the gene stealers oh my god imagine um, imagine like the imagine the effects wearing off halfway through and you wake up and you're having sex with a gene stealer so for context a gene stealer is a kind of humanoid humanoid size so quad arms it's got yeah it's got two legs Four arms, long segmented arms, each of which ends in like these kind of sharp talons, like th- well, the three taloned mm. hand thing claws, and it's got this kind of bulbous head. Um, do they have four eyes, or just some of the mutants? I think some of them have four eyes. eyes. Um, and they they are truly grotesque. Yeah, and yeah, but no, they, they it. I looked this up because I wanted to be sure. Because I was wait. Like, so, do they have human genitals? I, I don't know, <laughs> but like they. To be fair, xenomorphs don't have human genitals. They reproduce with people in, in a sort of way. True. I don't think. I don't think it. I don't think it canonically says in the in the. And then they. Fuck. Yeah, I don't think it says gene stealers fuck in, in the codex. But True. I mean, you know, they. It, it says that they manipulate the. Um, manipulate the minds of their victims in the same way to produce sexual desire and then impregnate these people with uh, a half human or elder or tau or whatever baby that then is cyclically linked to its gene stealer uh, ancestor and then becomes like a loyal cult member. Yeah, it becomes a kind of a, a small node on the hive mind. Yeah, basically. And that the more of them that appear, 
the more little blinking lights appear for the high fleets that are, that are flying past. Yeah, and yeah, they they not only serve to weaken the planetary defense by kind of inveigling themselves in, but yeah, they also serve as a, a kind of psychic beacon. Yeah, because we can't emphasize enough how important the link that the, the psychic aspect of the hive mind is, mm. because it is how they navigate, it is how they communicate, um, and they also can they can manipulate the psychic kind of energy of the warp. They create this shadow in the yeah. warp where wherever the hive goes, it's almost like the 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 light of the the psychic light of the of the immaterium mm. is kind of obscured. Yeah, and I think that's it's part of the horror of the tyrannies that doesn't get explored enough. Really, is the idea that. They don't just kill you, they turn on the lights. Well, yeah, they, they absolutely do. And, and, you know, the Imperium and lots of civilizations in the 41st millennium communicate via sending messages through the warp. And for those who don't know about the warp, basically the magic realm that exists <laughs> parallel to, the, to real space. It's not magic, but it is mm-hmm. um, where emotions and thoughts and feelings happen. It's also how you can, you, you can travel through that to dip in and out of real space. But because the Tyranids create this shadow... Anyone who tries to communicate by sending messages through psychics or mediums um, risks that put that uh, psychic or medium going insane because as soon as they tap into the warp, they hear billions and billions of insects clicking and chittering in their mind. And so they have to be extremely powerful to not go absolutely insane. As and they, well, they probably feel some of those minds turn towards them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then not, not only just that, but like they, they consume planets in a rapid case. I think the, timeline from the warhammer uh, wikipedia was like a hundred odd days from from the first if they, from the first landing of tyranid troops to the to the planet being stripped of all biomass uh, and i guess that's in an, in an undefended planet yeah because well, yeah. you know if they're putting up a, a serious fight then obviously yeah that time will be and that's the thing as well is that because it takes so long to travel through space in in 40k and in real life um by the time the reinforcements get there usually the tyrannies are gone and the planet's completely bare. Especially with that shadow in the warp. Yeah. Because, you know, the the main way that, especially the kind of the Imperium of Man used to travel through space faster than just drifting through it, yeah. is through the warp. Yeah. So, uh, yes, we talked about barren rocks, but it really should be emphasised that, like, if a high fleet gets your planet and starts uh, consuming it, they, do, they take everything and they inhale the atmosphere... The atmosphere thins so much that seas boil away. And if they're not being boiled away, the Tyrants consume the seas. Uh, literally everything down to their, like any mineral that isn't like usable is left basically, but you are basically looking at an asteroid left over. No atmosphere, nothing left over whatsoever. Well, because how do you repopulate that? You know, yeah. like, yes, if a planet is ravaged by war, then there might be some survivors or people could go back. Or If it's been got by the Tyranids, it's been got. Yeah, it's done. Yeah, so that that's a, a terrifying introduction to the idea of the Tyranids. But now we're going to sort of step back and look at them as a part of the wider um, Warhammer 40k world from a gaming perspective and also from a history of the development of the game. Because uh, I think a few, even a few people familiar with 40k might be a little bit surprised at how old the Tyranids are as a faction. In fact, they were actually mentioned in the first ever, well, I guess the... the Deep Ancestor of 40k, which was Rogue Trader, created by uh, Rick Priest. They were under a heading in the rulebook, uh, Tyranids and High Fleets. So already they were... As canon. A, already canon, yeah. They sort of started out looking like 
uh, goofy is sort of the word you look back on now when you compare them to what they look like now, where they're very much turned into, like we said, Geiger-esque abominations and creatures. And But in uh, when it was first created, and bear in mind, uh, Rogue Trader came out in 1987, it had that very much 80s, everything dial turned up to 11, mm-hmm. let's go mad. Um, love, I love all the artwork from that era. Yeah, they, they start out looking Beautiful. like basically um, centaurs uh, with big bulbous heads and uh, arms with bone swords. Uh, and in, in fact, they actually used um, what was described as non-biological equipments. They had they had laser guns and flak armor and things like that, um, which I think was maybe due to a uh, sort of a, the, the limits of the technology of the time, basically, in creating models. Because Rick Priestley was said that, that like those represented organic equipment that they, they obviously couldn't, you know. <laughs> so wait, so it was the it was in the rules or the models or both. Uh, I think it was in the. I think it was in the rules, but I think the mo- the model first models that came out did have guns as well that looked like guns. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the first Tyranid was a Zoat, a Zoat or Zoat again. Pronunciation's weird. Uh, which was a centaur-like creature, which actually disappeared. They got rid of it, and then they brought it back in 2020. Um, because, because nostalgia. Because nostalgia and money. It's the same word. Yeah, that's true. Actually, yeah, nostalgia money. And uh, yeah, so after the first Tyranids uh, in Rogue Trader, uh, Gene Stealers came next. They appeared as separate creatures before they were amalgamated into the Tyranids, but they were introduced in the very cool Space Hulk board game from 1989, which if you haven't played, you should play. It's very cool. It was an excellent board game. It was kind of like a, kind of like a dungeon crawl, but in space. Yeah. And it was kind of an asymmetric thing. One of you were playing the kind of Space Marine Terminators who were clunking through these corridors in their big armor with their high-tech weapons. And ba- the, the, the Gene Stealer player controlled essentially what were blips on the space marines radar yeah and again very much inspired by alien Mm, yeah and and so the the space marine player wouldn't know what these blips were until they actually got line of sight with them Mm. sometimes it was a rat sometimes it was you know like a cleaning droid sometimes it was nine gene stealers (laughs) coming to rip you open with their razor sharp talents yeah yeah also some great um uh, video games, space Hulk video games out there. Very scary, very uh, suspenseful. Nice. Um, but yeah. So after Gene Stealers came uh, the Tyranid Warriors, which we've mentioned before. They uh, the frontline and non-expendable troops in the Nid Army. They appeared in Advanced Space Crusade, another board game from Games Workshop in 1990. Again, as this time as Tyranids, um, not as separate things. And they have definitely evolved a lot aesthetically. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, and then, after uh, then three years later, the uh, the Tyranids got their own rulebook uh, in the second edition of 40k, which was in 1993, and then their first full proper codex in the third edition in 1998, which was just in time for Kinko and I to start collecting uh, mm-hmm. Warhammer. Yeah, they were the so they were the first 40k army that I collected. Mm. Um, I you know I'd collected Warhammer Fantasy before, but my the thing that drew me into 40k was these gross, weird bug monsters with these like m- guns that shot beetles. Yeah, yeah, a, a, a great choice of army for for both of us, uh, being that both of us have dyspraxia and <laughs> trying to paint those really the, fiddly little like... in between the rib cages <laughs> yeah. and every individual piece of carapace. Like it's the reason reason why Space Marines are popular because they're easy to paint. That's one of the one of the they're easy reasons. to wait. And what and, and 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 again we're sidetracking here a little bit, but another reason. Uh, that I think 
Space Marines are popular. And one of the reasons that I stopped playing Tyranids was you need so many, because Tyranids are a horde. They are, yeah. you know, yes, you have a few big creatures that are your centerpieces, but you've got, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of these tiny fiddly aliens yeah, to yeah. buy and paint. And that was expensive shit. And, and it took a to long glue time. Them together as well. I mean, I, 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 I find the assembling the funnest part because you put all these little poses and stuff. But yeah, it was a lot of money and a lot of time for yeah. for an army. Whereas, you know, you, you get ten space marines, you've got an army. Yeah, pretty much. The Tyranid army on the on the tabletop uh, still does and did um, emphasize flexibility. Um, every almost every unit could have two or three different guns. Different... That's the great thing about having four arms. Yeah, exactly. Uh, if you had, for example, a Carnifex or a Hive Tyrant model, it could have like four or five different types of weaponry. You could make it close combat. You could make it range. You could make it a mix of both. You could make it a tank killer. You could do... And my, my favorite thing about uh, playing Tyranids was that you could um, kind of, you could add different, not just, you know, equipment loadouts like, like weapons, but you could, uh, certain individuals, you could give them kind of random mutations, like you could give them adrenal glands or, yeah, you know, um, you could, you could make one of your gaunts, a synapse creature which would you know help to spread the hive mind throughout their squad and stuff like that and just generally especially when the vehicle design rules came out there was a lot of messing around you could do mm. I, I used to love converting things and putting limbs where they shouldn't be and stuff <laughs> yeah and i think to sort of to i remember playing with with uh I had a lot of gaunts. I bought the army box, basically. I say I. My mum bought me the army box, um, which had, I think, it had a Carnifex uh, squad of gene stealers two, and two squads of gaunts. Um, and then also, I got, then I also, somehow on eBay, I got a, like, a metal lictor for cheap, which I then sold for like 70 quid there down the line. But um, I've still got a metal lictor somewhere. <clears throat> but because um, I remember early edition, this might be third edition, had a rule where basically if one of your if one of your gaunts died, you could roll to see if it just if it doesn't count and it gets back up again to to sort of s- simulate the horde mechanic. Ah, um, I think that was the edition before I started playing, maybe because it was. Uh, but then they changed it in fourth. Yeah, um, I, I think, think I think I I first got a codex in fourth edition. Yeah, because third was my. Third, I I always remember third edition being mine because it was the one with the black templars on the cover. Um, fighting someone or you know. oh no yeah no that was the edition that i yeah. started playing yeah uh yeah. unless i'm just absolutely talking out my ass in which case at me and maybe maybe my, my friend who i played warhammer with who had the rule book um <laughs> was making pulling stuff out of his ass um but yeah so fourth edition made the gay added um nid uh big nid organisms like carnifexes and hero units and also reduced the point cost of Tyranids, so you would need you could put more models on the board, but also equally, so you don't you can buy more models. <laughs> um, and they sort of haven't really changed much from there, aside from the addition of various hero units uh, to like the the Swarm Lord, which is the big bad of Tyranids who gets turns up anywhere there's a problem for the Tyranids, and then if he dies, it doesn't matter because he just comes back as a uh, with all the memories intact and everything. Uh, old One Eye, who's a Carnifex who refuses to die. And has crab claws, which has I crab love. Claws. And they, and a, I think the a, red terror, or yeah, something? the red terror, which is like a, a sort of ravener, so the, the kind of snaky burrowing, yeah, monster, yeah. And I think there's a, then there's um, oh, what's the, bloody, the brain ones? Well, I can't remember. Zoanthrope. Zoanthrope. There's a zoanthrope who is uh, uh, 
apparently uniquely tuned to stealing souls and they like killed a load of Eldar and sucked up their souls instead of letting them die properly. Well, I, I think that when we're talking about the connection between Zoanthropes and, and Eldar, this might be a, a good point to talk about where some of this variation in Nids comes from. Yeah. Because we've talked about how they, they harvest genetic material from target, you know, uh, from, from target populations, target species. And th- this is quite a nice little theme. You know, they've, they've taken, for example, Eldar DNA mm. and they've taken, you know, the material from this psychically resonant, you know, space elves and created their floating psychic artillery brain monster. Um, and for example, from the orcs, you know, the burly, tough, orcs they've taken genetic material to create the biovore their kind of living artillery piece mm. and yeah. then there's one which and this is quite a fun bit of flavor um but it also shows how much of 40k law is presented from an imperial perspective though so it says there are rumors that the that tyrant guard who are basically super tough super armored bodyguard units for the hive tyrant might have stemmed from captured space marine dna mm. which obviously with within i say obviously which within the imperium is absolute heresy yeah because these are the essentially grandchildren of the emperor yeah so they've got the idea that the that these horrible alien insecty devoury monsters might have some of the emperor's dna in them mm. um gets you know gets religious zealots a bit flustered you can't be messing with the ubermensch exactly oh. and the the entire concept of the imperium is based around the kind of ubermensch supremacy type thing well in that case we'll talk about the 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 law and how the Imperium, because as we've mentioned multiple times on this podcast, all 40k law is Imperial propaganda. Therefore, nothing ever happens to anyone else. Therefore, it always has to be seen through the lens of the Imperium of Man. So we'll talk about how the Nids first uh, interacted with the Imperium and with the uh, the 40k world at large. So in the law, the first contact between the Imperium and the Nids is uh, 745.m41, uh, which for those who... For those with lives. Yeah, and those with knives <laughs> is the 745th year of the 41st millennium. Uh, they first appear on the eastern fringes of the Milky Way. I never understand what they mean when they say north, south, east, west of the galaxy. I guess it's if you're looking down flat at the galaxy. But like where? But again, but, where? But, but the, the way that we measure north and south and east and west on the world is that north and south are like on the Polar. axis. You're right actually. And yeah. it revolves east and west. Mm. So does that mean that does that mean that n- that the north of the galaxy is like above the plane of the galaxy and the That's south very is true. And then that but that means that east and west are just Changes all the they're time. just rotational directions yeah. rather than absolute. Yeah, well. It's almost like this science fantasy setting doesn't make any sense. <laughs> That's where I draw the line. <laughs> I, I can forgive space <laughs> racism. <laughs> God help you if you mess up compass points. Um, so yeah, they appear on the eastern fringes, uh, which is where most uh, lots of lots of stuff happens in the east of the galaxy because that's where the ultramarines are, and that's where anything interesting has to happen. Um, 
every, anything interesting has to happen to the least interesting faction <laughs> in the entire game. Yeah, yeah. One day we'll, I'll do it in defense of Ultramarines. Uh, we'll do a law court thing. Um, <laughs> yes, but it's also been thought um, that NIDs have been encountered throughout the galaxy since the 35th millennium, which I think is roughly... That's not the same as the Horus Heresy, but it's close. Uh, I think... I think, I, think, so. I think the Horus Heresy was 31st. Okay, all right. So uh, not not too far away. Yeah. Um, yes, it's uh, the thing with the Tyranids, we mentioned it at the start, is that they are uh, extra galactic. It's not known what galaxy or galaxies they come from. Uh, there are a few theories, as in one of them is apparently right now canon, but it's changed a lot of why they're here. Um, the first big theory was that they're attracted by the psychic beacon provided by the Emperor of Mankind, the Astronomicon. So this is essentially a giant psychic lighthouse, basically, that um, that is a point of reference for all communication and travel within the, uh, the, the human empire. Yeah. And essentially, it's a, it's a bright beacon, like you said. And for, for a super organism that is is incredibly psychically attuned and is drawn to life so it can consume it you've essentially put up a big sign saying buffet open yeah um it it kind of relates to the uh the dark forest theory of our relationship with aliens um for for those of you who aren't familiar it's about kind of the dis- the debate over whether we actually should be trying to contact extraterrestrial life or not because and the, as the analogy goes, it's like lighting a candle in a dark forest. Yeah, you might be able to see for a little bit, but you have no idea what you might be signalling to mm. out in the darkness. Yeah. Yeah, and it, it's a crass sort of uh, comparison would be, uh, people always say it's like, like basically the turn is like moths as well, and it's like a big light. They found in the in the middle of nowhere, and they're going to yeah, bang their heads up against it until they consume. But, <laughs> they consume but, but moths are adorable and harmless. Oh yeah, absolutely, moths are lovely. I mean, um, tyranids are adorable, but they're not harmless. No, that's true. I, they have lots of arms. Boo! <laughs> <laughs> never mind. I was never seen again. So welcome to the new solo podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who, Alex? Who? The second theory, and this is, uh, and again, at me if I'm wrong, but this seems to be the current one based on books is they were drawn by a device of Necron origin. If you don't know who the Necrons are, listen to our uh, last episode on Necrons and Tau. Um, Robot space Egyptians. Yeah. They created something called the Pharos device, which is essentially uh, a quantum entanglement teleporter. So uh, doesn't, doesn't Pharos mean lighthouse? Yeah. yeah, I think that is a lighthouse. Yeah, It's, very, it's quite on the nose there. Um, and it is also very bright. Uh this this feels like this feels like a bit of a propaganda attempt to shift the blame away from the humans. <laughs> Maybe it's like, oh, did we invite the like? Did we invite the evil space cockroaches here? No, it must have been the Necrons. We wouldn't do something that dumb. Ah. it's like it's like when you wake up after a party and you realize the front door's open, and you're like, <laughs> my housemate must have left the front door open. What a dickhead! Yeah, yeah. Although to be fair, the humans do have their their fingerprints on this because the the Faris device which is kind of cool in theory i won't go into it but it's essentially a quantum entanglement teleporter powered by empathy uh basically you imagine yourself being next to someone or something in the galaxy and then through quantum entanglement it transports you there immediately that's really sweet yeah um but 
uh, that's really nice and cool. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, a lot of Space Marines during the Horus Heresy. Uh, <laughs> I imagine myself murdering an entire race. <laughs> well, <laughs> what they actually did was they, they were trying to contact loyalists. Uh, I think it was the Ultramarines, actually, um, uh, trying to contact loyalists and overcharge the beacon to the point where it basically blew up and uh, sent out a massive signal uh, beyond the galactic uh, space. This is why we can't have nice things. Yeah. Uh, so a big call for reinforcements, which they, they messed up. So that's the second, and I think that's currently the, the most canonically uh, real one right now. Also, you know, why not both? Why not both? And then the third one, which is the really creepy one, which is the Dark Forest one again, is uh, the Tyranids are running away from something. Well, in the immortal words of Qui-Gon Jinn, there's always a bigger fish. There's always a bigger fish. Is there always a bigger extra galactic insect? What it, and that's a very. I know an old emperor who swallowed a fly. <laughs> and that sort of that has that very sort of um, Cthulhu-esque kind of thing to it. Where yeah. If they're so desperate to get away, and like, what if all the biomass they're consuming is because they just we need the energy to get away from this as quick as possible? Um, but yeah. So the first, uh, I, I really hope it's all three. <laughs> yeah, it could be all three. It's up to you, dear listener, um, because it's all about imagination. Uh, but don't bring your own kit bash models to a games workshop store. <laughs> or 3D printed. Um, <laughs> as long as you pay your money, it's fine. <laughs> the uh, so the, yeah, the first official recorded contact with the Tyranids uh, came during a Tyranid attack on the ocean world called Tyran or Tyran. Again, we've run into this problem. Oh my god, what a coincidence! I know. Hence, they're called Tyranids. Tyranids. <laughs> Uh, it's almost like someone's like, "Wait, how do we make an? How do we ca- <laughs> explain why we came up with his name?" Oh, okay. Also, like, oh yeah, so we found this new planet. It's called Tyran. You want to come live on it? No, it sounds awful. <laughs> it's made, It's entirely water. <laughs> it's, it's entirely water. And it's called Tyran. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. So, Imperial forces responding to a distress beacon um, from the planet found it stripped completely bare of life, down to rock. That sounds familiar uh and then ran smack bang into the first high fleet high fleet uh behemoth or behemoth again pronunciation yeah so the this is gonna set off a a theme or a pattern that you might and that the eagle-eared listener or owl-eared listener eagle-eyed <laughs> owl-eyed and eagle-eared <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna set off <laughs> this is gonna Proved to be the start of a <laughs> fuck you. No, we're keeping our light eagle in. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Behemoth. I'm going to go with Behemoth. I'm going to say it the American way. I'm going to say Behemoth, and then we're going to fight. <laughs> this is what can I, this is what happens after every podcast. <laughs> we just have a fight. Um, yeah. So, uh, Behemoth is only stopped by the Ultramarines because uh, there, there has to be um, when it slams into their home sector and their home world um, McCragger um, or McCrag here we go again so basically yeah the Tyranids are introduced as taking on the strongest uh, the strongest oh, chapter McCrag. The- <laughs> <laughs> so High Fleet Behemoth gets right up in McCrag yeah, gets right up in McCrag um <laughs> Uh, yeah, and, and they're, they're sort of introducing. I think this is a very introducer, introducer a race in the law in a very impactful way of being like, look, they took on the strongest uh, Space Marines chapter, nearly defeated them on their home turf, on their home turf, uh, and so badly mauled them that it actually it did it took centuries for for the Segmentum Solar, not Segmentum Solar, Segmentum Ultra Ultima to uh, to recover. 
And then um, everyone gets a bit of a break for about 200 years, which was nice. And it was like, oh, that's over. Yeah. That, was a, that was horrible. That was a horrible episode of our lives. <laughs> yeah. Thank God that's done. We can go back to being boring space fascists again. Yeah, exactly. And then uh, in uh, the 993rd year... Back on that bullshit, baby! <laughs> uh, High Fleet Kraken uh, appears. Uh, which then, having seemed to have learned uh, previously, splits into lots of tiny splinter fleets, which then uh, attack different star systems at different times before anyone really knows what's happening. Uh, it wipes out the size of the Emperor, a spaceman chapter no one cares about, because, you know... Because they did. Yeah, exactly. Well, <laughs> that and just, like, you can't wipe out an important spaceman chapter. Uh, and then nearly wipes out the poor Lamenters, who are just cool enough that James Workshop, James Work, James Workshop, James, <laughs> James Workshop. We've done this before, Mister James Workshop, the founder and owner of James, of James Workshop, decides <laughs> that they need to be saved uh, because the Lamenters, who are very cool and very sad, very emo, um, th- basically throw their full strength at a High Fleet Kraken to stop it for just a few months to prevent Imperial worlds from falling and that enable people to evacuate. And then uh, Kraken sort of goes out with a little bit of a whimper by being defeated by the Eldar trying to save one of their craft worlds, uh, the craft world of Eandin. Um, it is nice to see, you know, um, a, a race other than the Imperium of Man yeah. getting a look in. Because, you know, I'm, I'm sure it's not the first time that any other species has fought, has fought the Tyranids, but it's the first time in the lore that we see it. Yeah, yeah. It's a bit. It is. A, it is a, a a cataclysmic event for the Eldar because you know when the if the Tyrant again. What uh, listen to the Eldar episode if you want more context on this. But um, because if the Tyranids consume the craft world, they don't just consume those living on it. They consume everyone who ever died. They know, consume all their soul. So Kraken was mostly defeated, but is still hanging around. Sorry, Kraken and McCraggan. I've got <laughs> going on. Um, there's a theme. Um, <laughs> I really wish that was the theme. <laughs> the theme, yeah. <laughs> then uh, everyone again, everyone goes, oh, that was awful, wasn't it? Uh, and then only five years later... Lightning doesn't strike three times. No, exactly. Uh, High Fleet Leviathan turns up. But Leviathan's got a but plan. that doesn't sound like crack. <laughs> well, like, if you want to know more of the theme on this, dear listeners, then just look up the High Fleet names. I think one of them's Jormungander. Oh uh, yeah, and like, is there Gorgon as well? Gorgon, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's not so. Um, yeah, Leviathan. Whoa, flips the script by deciding to uh, move in three dimensions <gasps> because gala- galaxies aren't two D, and so Leviathan turns up from below the galactic plane, which is not the galactic south, or is the galactic <laughs> south? <laughs> Could be the east. We don't know, <laughs> depending on where you're looking from. Space geography. If you're looking from, you know, yeah. But Leviathan ships people up because it goes straight for Terra. What well, ships people up in the Imperium of Man? I'm sure everyone who wasn't in Imper- the Imperium was like, "Hey, massive sigh of relief." Uh, yeah. And so this this going straight for Terra does support the idea that you know at least part of what is drawing the Tyranids to to this galaxy is the beacon of the Astronomicon, or at least some kind of something unique about Terra. And the main thing that fits that bill is. You know, the the Emperor and the Astronomicon. Yeah. But Leviathan at the last second is distracted by a guy who uh, we really haven't given him enough credit, but uh, an Inquisitor Crippman who was uh, an Inquisitor of the Ordo Xenos who was exiled for his decision to ex- basically destroy planets in the way of Tyranid High Fleets to stop them from getting biomass and then weaken them. Uh, but 
<laughs> but committing genocide on a dozen planets to prevent the tyrannies from moving does tend, tend to rub people up the wrong way. <laughs> uh, so he gets exiled, but he's still trying to work for the. He's still trying to work his good. Um, yeah, there's a, some real heavy quotes around. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. So he, uh, what he does is he nicks a load of gene stealers, basically captures them with the help of some space marines, and chucks them right into the center of um, an orc empire. Again, if you want to know more about how cool the orcs are. Listen to the episode on Eldar and Orcs uh, in the Octarius Center. Now, so this is like, I guess, I mean, what, what would be the what would be the real world equivalent? I mean, like, the, there's so much biomass when it comes to the Orcs. Uh, yeah, and well, especially because the Orc kind of um, the way that Orcs reproduce and grow and stuff is so it generates such a huge amount of biomass because they're always fighting and yeah. so they're always kind of losing it. Yeah, and they're fungal, aren't they? So like, yeah. there's there's all that. So basically the Leviathan sees all of this as an even brighter glowing flame to go and consume and so reroutes itself past Terra to go and attack the Orcs. And now they're in the middle of a massive, great big fucking war. Uh, but the problem there, uh, as I hinted at way back, I think this was 4th edition, Tyranid Codex, was you know what happens when one side wins? two ultra adaptive species uh, going at it hammer and tongs for like a hundred years. And th- you know, they are both species that get stronger the more they fight. Yeah. Orcs because they just get bigger and orkier. Yeah. And Tyranids because they gain adaptive traits and, and genetic material and, you know, bat- but like battle experience from, you know, in the, in the hive mind. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's something we never touched on earlier, but it's worth thinking about as you're listening to this, that the hive mind is, it's like a like a computer, I guess. You know, Every single battle that every single tyranny fights everywhere is fed into the hive mind. So it's continually learning about strategies, tactics, enemies, weaknesses. You know, it's not like if you destroy all the tyranids in one sector, that means all that knowledge is lost. No, it's already been fed back to the central computer in the middle of the, uh, of the, the fleet. So... Mm-hmm. Uh, Leviathan is the current main big threat from the Tyranids. It's still around. Um, it, uh, it's been part of uh, uh, the devastation of Baal, which is a massive thing. Well, massive in terms of Games Workshop actually doing stuff with its setting, which is the home planet. Again, it's got to be the home planet of a Space Marine chapter for it to, to matter. A popular Space Marine chapter. Yes, exactly. Uh, so Baal, which is the home world of the Blood Angels, um, gets attacked by Leviathan. The Blood Angels call all of their successor chapters and allies and everyone they know to come and help, and it barely dents the uh, the Tyranid attack. Uh, and right in the middle of this, the, uh, the massive galaxy-tearing cataclysm more in that in a future episode, because we really do not have time for this. Um, <laughs> uh, tears the universe in half and splits the splits real space between the warp and, and the real world. Uh, and just in time, a load of demons turn up and just declare, because it's MacGuffins, isn't it? They turn up and say, oh, no, we're, we're the ones who, ha- who should be the ones killing the Blood Angels. So us and the Blood Angels will kill the Nids and then we'll disappear right at the end of the fight and then leave. That seems lazy. I know. <laughs> it's like... Yeah, but also like, surely, surely there is a there's there's another sort of plot hook there that I don't know if they did use, but demons turn up these beings that are born of the warp, and they see that there is this super intelligence that is causing a blockage, a shadow in the warp. Mm. 
Surely that's their motivation to fuck up the Tyranids. Yeah, I think the moment, the main real motivation should be that you know they're both, they should be fighting to see who gets to take control of the galaxy because they're 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 anathema to each other. Yeah, really. the de- um, demons and the Tyranids are yeah completely in opposition. Yeah, and so maybe that's the hand wavy bullshit thing that oh they were too busy fighting this. Uh, this foe to really care about the blood angels, but because you can't have chaos on a bald rock. No, exactly, and that in fact that's you know that ties in nicely to where the, the situation is right now. Because the galaxy is split into and there's weird matter and warp magic everywhere, it's quite a bad time to be a Tyranid because there's less biomass available. People are being sucked, planets and systems are being sucked into the warp. You can't get to them. Um, there's you know if everything's being taken over by demons, then you don't have much uh, sustenance left. So um, the splinters of Leviathan are now turning their heads back around to Terra and they've started attacking the edges of the solar system. And that's where we are in the setting right now, basically. Um, and there's a, uh, there's a great quote um, from, I think it's from a codex somewhere, but it's about a, a shadowy council in the Imperium called the Strategic Collective. But it says that they've been analyzing all details of Tyranid invasions and have drawn a conclusion as stark as it is terrifying. The fleets faced by the Imperium to date are but parts of a far greater whole, and this whole will be arriving at the Imperium's borders within less than a Terran century. They estimate that mobilization levels in the Imperium would need to be increased by a minimum of 500% just to defend against it. And this is already in a space-spanning, a galaxy-spanning empire that is entirely geared to war. And so when you're already operating at full war capacity, being like, no, we're going to need at least six times as much war. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We need, we need six times as many models to... Uh... <laughs> yeah, you're going to need to buy... You, you need to ask for six times as many Christmas presents, kids. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that's sort of... That's uh, the long and the long and the long of the Tyranids. And like it, it brings us to like the the... So the the discussion point for this episode, which is you know sort of, if you're creating this situation, creating a civilization that really or an enemy that is sort of the end of not just the Imperium but the end of the galaxy, I guess you know, how do you go about doing that in a way that feels true to the setting and doesn't just sort of feel like ooh spooky and then and allows you to keep making money? Yeah, exactly. As as you may have guessed, and and we we've been pretty upfront that both Kinko and I collected, gave our money to James Workshop. For uh, for the Tyranids, and we played as them on the tabletop. We both admire the faction, um, but there are questions uh, not just raised by us, but by other fans. You know how how can you create uh, this adaptive, terrifying, and super intelligent enemy, and then create lots and lots of law uh, books, media where they get whomped all the time. Uh, you know, yeah, they're either. They're either scary and an existential threat or not. Yeah. And I don't, I haven't read enough of the stories about like, you know, of like the, the detailed situations of, you know, the times that Tyranid high fleets have been turned back. Mm. Like, has there been specific MacGuffins or tactics or anything in particular that, that makes it doable? There are very few books where the Tyranids are the antagonists. In most cases the Tyranids turn up to be a mechanic of a sort of like, uh oh we were fighting each other and now oh no, the Tyranids Common are Common enemy! Up. Yeah, exactly. Which is weird because often 
chaos is the often chaos is used as the uh, the common enemy for like you know the Imperium and Eldar to team up, or like the Imperium and Tau to team up, because chaos is the big bad scary. Yeah, but then along comes something that can make the Imperium and chaos team up. Yeah, yeah, I know, and I think that because I think it would be very difficult, even for the extremely talented and not at all hackneyed writers at the Black Library to write a 300-page book where the antagonist is an alien species without having to do without having to do a lot of thinking about how you portray a hive mind if you're trying to, to you know work from its perspective. You know what I think would be a really interesting piece of fiction to read. Go on. Is a book told from the point of view of the hive mind. <laughs> write it you cowards. <laughs> yeah, I think also like I think that would to- be so cool. Like the 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 kind of the narrative and linguistic devices that you could use to to make the reader feel like they're kind of like not really it's not really one character but it is one character but it's billions of characters mm. but they're all one mind and like the the consciousness is flowing through different like situations and seeing things through different eyes and I think it'd be cool yeah yeah and I think um, I. <sighs> I think it's very difficult, and I also think I think it's a lot to ask. <laughs> of, I mean, yeah, the black the black library books and Games Workshop books have been have appeared on New York best bestseller lists, um, but I wouldn't I'd say few of them because of the in, inherent quality of the writing, uh, most of them because the setting carries it a lot. The setting's fantastic; it's been built up for nigh on forty years, so like you know, it's got that power to it to power things through. I think it will require a very deft touch to sort of oh, absolutely, yeah. approach it from that way. And you know, and and in kind of reintegrating ourselves into the the world of 40k to to make sure that we were sharp for this podcast. You know, as I've mentioned before, you know, I've been listening to some of the audiobooks of uh of some of the some of the Black Library material. And it is variable. Mm. Uh, in its kind of artistic merit, yeah, and yeah, yeah, of course, telling a story from the point of view of a billions-strong hive mind would be an artistic challenge, and I'm not a good enough writer to do it, but it'd be sick. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think I think also because by the by the nature of the beast, uh, beast being tyranids, if you if you want to write an effective story involving the tyranids it has to be horror uh it can't really be this fist pumping war military fiction yeah yeah like i mean all good uh military science fiction that involves fighting uh unknowable horrible aliens is psychological horror uh because it's hard to write in any in any other way effectively well yeah look at and we keep referring back to it but alien and aliens yeah and you compare that, for example, I mean, it's a bit of a ham-fisted comparison, but you look at like Starship Troopers, the film, which, you know, that was created for a different purposes, you know, lampooning um, nationalism, fashion, and imperialism, that kind of stuff. But again, that's not really, that's an action film, but it, they never at any point did the bugs in that film. You ever like, ah, oh, you know, oh, there's lots of them, but, uh, you know, whereas, you know, again, like Alien, even the first Predator, you know, that feeling of just like completely... Especially alien. You do not know what you're up against. Yeah, and actually, yeah. Alien is uh, well. I think because you know they it inspired Tyranids. 
you look at the comparison between Alien and Aliens. Alien, one xenomorph decimates the entire crew, keeps they're terrified, like it's oh my god, oh my god, this huge powerful being, and then you have guys with rifles gunning down xenomorphs in the second film. Yeah, Yeah. and it's kind of like I think that's where you'll get the difference in Tyranids in the media as well. They're either terrifying beings that will that haunt people on the edge of madness and hunt them down one by one, or gunned down in their bajillions by uh, square-jawed white guys with stubble and their big guns. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that also, um, you know, because it it reflects on our relationship with, I think, invertebrates in general in the real world. Yeah, that's very true. You know? Um, People will either be like, I will crush you like a bug, or, oh no, a spider! Yeah. And it's the same bug. Hmm. Um... And we either see them as this terrifying threat or as absolutely nothing. Very rarely something in between. Mm. There's um, one of the very early, very early, very, very early Warhammer 40k books. I think I've talked about it before. The Inquisitor series has a an assassin, Imperial assassin, use a polymorph uh, potion, juice, magic, sci-fi fuckery uh, to polymorph herself into a gene stealer. Um and the book is known for being weird, but like, <laughs> but like, she probably was into a gene stealer, goes into a gene stealer cult, and basically is like there for like a gene stealer orgy, and that's kind of like, <laughs> and it's kind of, that was a bit much even for me as someone who like is kind of like broad minded. It was like, okay, all right, I'm like, oh, did you need to write this? Like, <laughs> like how much detail do they go uh, into? Too much, really. It's just like, oh, you didn't have to do this. You chose to. Sorry, what's this book titled? Asking for a friend. <laughs> Now I, I can never remember the name of it, but like basically everyone always laughs at it. I quite like the series, but everyone laughs at it as like rubbish, ham-fisted like stuff. Oh, as opposed to all the Horace Heresy <laughs> books, which are high literature and yeah, entirely yeah. like compelling and consistent. Yeah, I think that there's one. <laughs> I too enjoy forty-minute sections of naval warfare in space. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that <laughs> all the best stuff from the lore that I've read on the Tyranids has always come from snippets in the codexes or codices. Uh, there's one story by Dan Abnett because you know that's it's a trope by now to be like oh I don't know blood but Dan Abnett's pretty good. Um, he does he does a really good story. A portion of it is in one of the Tyranny codices, which is about the fall of a planet from the start when they find like the first of them in like a, in like a farming town to then when the place is under full assault and stuff and all the horror and everyone giving up and i think the guy spoilers. spores raining from the sky yeah yeah i think i think the crux the like the climax of the story is that there's this, this from this view of an imperial guardsman he's armor oh guard we're doomed and then uh and then the lamenters space marines like rain down from the sky and start taking out the the tyranids and he's like oh we're saved and then like in the next bit it's like oh no the, now the space marines are getting fucking decimated <laughs> and then the guy shoots himself because he's like oh my god i can't take it anymore but yeah that was that's a really good piece of literature and it shows how you can sort of take it that right way yeah you know because that's that's the point like if the tyranids aren't devouring everything then well there's no but also i I, you know i think circling back to your point of how and why do you create something that you're implying will end the galaxy because you know for for the majority of 40k history well for the majority of time that 40k has been around in our world in the real world so since 87 yeah stop me if i'm wrong but like for for a long time the chronology in in universe didn't advance 
Yeah. It, we, we were in the year roughly 41, sort of roughly 40,000. Yeah, yeah. For like eight editions. Mm. And then in this most recent edition, we've had a massive jump forward in the timeline and loads of shit has happened. We've had the big chaos rift. Talk about that next episode. We've got the whole second civil war, like two empires. Yeah, yeah. If we if we continue to advance the timeline of the galaxy through editions, surely the existence of the Tyranids is just setting up for an end of Warhammer forty thousand. Yeah, because you can't keep advancing the the the, the timeline in kind of millennia jumps. All the while saying, oh, the big scary insects are going to come and eat you at some point. The big scary insects are going to... Yeah. You know, you can only, you can, you can only cry Tyranid so many times. Yeah. I, in a, I think it's, it's interesting from the, the Tyranids, when you look at the Tyranids, because it's not like uh, Mr. James Workshop made them in the last 10 years as like a, ooh, big bad is appearing. Mm-hmm. They've been there from the start, which is kind of mad when you think about it. Because like it's like when you think about it logically or cynically, like uh, as a marketing point, it would make sense to be like, "Oh no, this is it! This is the final one! Everyone buy all these models." We're gonna have a big camp, you know, a big uh, campaign where you can yeah. all play battles as yeah. long as the results are how we wanted it to. Um, <laughs> looking at you, chaos. Right? But um, but since they've been there from the beginning, and this has been fed through bit by bit, you know, it's it's kind of. I think it's like the Tyranid should be an end game boss, basically, but they're in a universe where there are about four or five other end game bosses. Yeah, and like how how do you how do you keep raising the stakes or main, at least maintain the stakes? Yeah, when you've got these ancient gods from the Immaterium that you know represent all of the strongest and weirdest emotions of humanity, and they're kind of legions of demons. And you've got this long slumbering race of immortal high tech space Egyptians, and you've got <laughs> the this you know implacable race of always strengthening war oriented aliens, and you've got these hungry space bugs like and 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 you know forty thousand is such a kind of hyperbolic universe, but mm. yeah it. <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, it, it doesn't really feel like there's much more to go. Yeah. But at least, you know, at least the Tyranids, you know, there's a lot of debate about the kind of the, the grimness and the darkness and the morality of other factions. At least with the Nids, they're not evil. No. Like, in the immortal words of Nigel from Finding Nemo, fish got to swim, birds got to eat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I... I think that also, you know, oh, I lost my point. <laughs> I had it, but then I then I a pelican it. came and then a pelican away. Came and took it away. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, well, I think we're we're going to end up being cyclical on this because I think we're 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 circling the point rather than the drain. But like Warhammer Forty K as a setting is going from strength to strength. Really, it's it's becoming huge in the way that Games Workshop is broadening it to much larger audiences selling the IP to a million video games developers. It has a magazine. I meant to mention this uh, to you off mic, but I mentioned to you now, which was really weird. Uh, they have a magazine, Warhammer 40k magazine, which gives you stickers when you buy it. And the the, the strap line on the bottom, <laughs> and bear in mind, it's, imper- it's all Imperium focus, was show your loyalty. 
<laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've seen that. And I saw that and I was like, mm, yeah, that's weird. But yes, as this IP becomes even, even bigger, and it does seem to be growing and growing, it's not like they're going to shut it down like they did with Warhammer Fantasy. Um, that's the problem. That is a problem. Mm-hmm. And so will we get... And I think that what they what they need to throw more danger in, like we've mentioned here, Tyranids arrive at McCragger, um, get beaten. Tyranids arrive at Baal, get beaten. They're heading to Terra, ooh, at some point. But it's like, when the Imperium loses, it loses backwater planets you don't give a shit about. And when it wins, it always wins in big, important places. Yeah. And like, Kadia- there, are, there are a couple of rare exceptions to that, like Cadia yeah, and stuff. Yeah. So Cadia, which again, next episode, but Cadia was like a will it, won't it planet for like so long. And they finally blew it up. Spoilers. <laughs> and uh, and that was a ma- not a massive thing, but it was big. But that's the only, when you think about it, big name planet, you think, uh, planets like Armageddon, which was a, a, very, a focus of a lot of campaigns still there. Still fine. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. Right. I, that, I think that's a product of the fact that the the chronology of, of the Milky Way in the 40k universe didn't advance for a long time. And so there were those established things that we, you know, that you, you knew that Cadia was the will they, weren't they planet because actually we weren't moving in time. Yeah. Whereas you know, after the, the time jump. Yeah. The yeah. Montage, I think the, the Nids just need a win. Like give them yeah. one, give them one thing. Like let them take, why not just let them take Baal? Like, just be like, oh no, they fucked up the Blood Angels. Because then people wouldn't buy so many Space Marines. But then you can be like, now the Blood Angels are on a path of revenge. Oh, true, yeah. Um, this time it's personal. Yeah, exactly. Buy more Primaris Marines. Just give them one win. Give every give all the give all the alien factions a win. Yeah. <laughs> like I, there's a post which I, I I linked to in our in our script. Um, by someone someone in the comments of this post said basically, you know, they're bored. By the setting, I think it seemed like they were a long-time fan because, although a lot has happened between M M forty-one and M forty-two, not a lot has happened in terms of things being bad for the Imperium. Like, yeah, the the big picture stuff seems. Oh my god, this is this is crazy bad. But then actually, in the minutia, it's like, oh, actually, they're just we got quad bikes. Yeah, (laughs) they're just carrying on as normal. Like, there's so many little things that should be going wrong everywhere. Mm -hmm. Like, they they use the example of you know. Maybe there there aren't enough black ships taking psychers to feed the emperor's astronomical. That could be a huge thing, but nah. You know, half the galaxy's like not, no, not because, connected because anymore. the Imperium must be strong. Yeah, show your loyalty, children. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's yeah, but yeah, that's the thing with Tyrion. It's um, I think that they're too cool to succeed. Too cool to succeed. And uh, just like our podcast. <laughs> 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 That's what we tell ourselves. We self-identify as too cool to succeed. <laughs> um, one thing that really kind of caught my imagination when I was reading up on some of the more recent events between the forty-first and no, yeah, forty-first and forty-second millennium. Yeah. The whole stuff about that Inquisitor trying to distract the Tyranids by planting a load of gene stealers in that Orc Empire. Yeah. What the fuck did he think would happen? <laughs> <laughs> like yes, you've bought yourself a bit of time, but you, you know that inevitably one of those two threats is going to go away. Mm. But that means that the other one's going to have full attention to you and be much stronger. Um, it's kind of you know reminiscent of 
some some US and Western foreign policy uh, over the past few decades. Yeah. You know, the whole like enemy of my enemy is my friend, short termist, uh, you know, uh, let's dedicate this Bond film to the brave people of the Mujahideen <laughs> yeah. uh, and flood Afghanistan with weapons because they're fighting those damn Russians. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, realizing that we might have, might have done fucked up and created a more, you know, a more powerful uh, enemy or a bigger problem yeah. for, for the, the intervening power. And, and, and again, like, like that, the annoying thing is, is that that sounds interesting, but we'll never know. We'll ne- You'll get snippets, like in in the in the wikis and stuff. They'll be like, "Oh, there are reports of Tyranids that are bulkier and greener, and or orcs that are like adapted to the Tyranids, so they're like they've got like weird tentacles or whatever." But like, that's it. That's all you'll get. They won't, we won't get a book. Like, imagine a, imagine a book that was set that was written was set in the Octarius or whatever it's called Empire Orc Empire. That's the from the perspective of a war boss or something like that. Like also, why are they calling it the Octarius Sector? That's the Imperial name for it. No one there is Imperial. <laughs> yeah. That's Orc territory. Yeah, yeah. Orcs can't even say Octarius. <laughs> that is, that's very true. Tyranid sure as fuck can. Yeah. I sorry. I know that we've been over this a million times, but it boils my piss that everything in almost everything in the in the forty k universe is portrayed to us via imperial propaganda yeah um you know yes it can be an interesting narrative device but it doesn't have to be the only way that we interact with the system yeah i think there's i i think we go we go to that well quite a lot on the podcast as well and i think it's important to say that we'll say it through that lens but it is a cop-out at the end of the day it's boring it's easy and it's boring right and you know and there are so like you've you've created a galaxy with all these different societies in it Tell stories from all those societies, not not of them through the th- through the imperial lens. It's 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 that it's it's the whole thing of kind of you know Orientalism and cultural colonialism and stuff like that. It's your stories are only valuable through our eyes. Yeah, and I I think there's a there's a failure in uh, the fact that all factions aside from the Imperial of Man in in 40k are view like that you you pit them against human beings because then you can go oh look how crazy are compared to the Mm. really boring fascist humans and also we should care yeah but the reader it's like the writers are assuming that the reader won't have a frame of reference if they pit i mean even like if we split tyranids out of it eldar versus orcs tal versus orcs tal versus eldar but they're just like, oh, they won't know what's going on because how will they know if we don't... None talk- of them look like me! <laughs> yeah. How will they... They have no imagination. Coincidentally, all the main characters are white! <laughs> yes, we include some POC, but they're on the side. Yeah. <laughs> we, I, we, we go over this ground a lot, but it is, I think, a really important thing to consider when you're looking at kind of the... Yeah. The, the way that... The, the the portrayal of the 40k universe relates to how it interacts with the real world. But going going back to the nids, uh, I yeah I find it really interesting that they've got this whole kind of like almost like Soviet nids, orc mujahideen, yeah, uh, and the Imperium has just done the American thing of like oh we'll just we'll get that fight going. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure nothing bad could ha- could come of this. Yeah, I think that yeah, it's 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 yeah. I mean, it, well, like we said, it's, it, I can't believe that we're not seeing more of it because uh, obviously some smart some smart person in a writing team somewhere has gone. Oh, what if? 
mm-hmm. and they ran with it, but they just didn't run far enough with it. They're like, it's cool enough that we'll let it happen. There's there's a massive deep well of really interesting stories and perspectives that you can tell with the Tyranids. I think, yeah, like you said, they are neglected because they're almost too alien for people to maybe care about. Yeah. They're just this big threat rather than something that you care what happens to it. Yeah. But I still want that hive mind first person or, you know, nth person uh, perspective story. Write it. Fanfic it. Make it happen. (laughs) There probably is some pretty good fanfic out there. Maybe leave the Gene Steeler orgies out. Keep that in a separate book. If if you're listening to this and you know some great Tyranid focused Tyranid perspective fanfic, by all means, at us and tell us. Yes, please, yeah. And we'll read it and we'll talk about it. Um, but we've run out of things to say, really. <laughs> we haven't, but we've run out of uh, interesting things to say that aren't just us repeating the same things over and over again. The Tyranids have come and stripped this topic bare. Yeah, and I'm out of biomass. <laughs> so <laughs> so we're going to call it there on this episode on the Tyranids. Uh, thanks for listening to the, the Lorax. We have one more episode left in our 40k mini-series. And it's the big one. Yeah, the big one. Chaos. 